from Exodus 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep his statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that first open the womb but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land, by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went before them day by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. 
the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is the word of the Lord. It's my joy now to introduce to you, or maybe reintroduce to some of you, Wes Baker, um, who's going to be preaching here both today and um, next week. Um, Wes is a, and his family are um, missionaries in Peru, in Trujillo, um, but they're here on U.S. assignment now, um, and so we're excited to have them here. So, Wes, thanks. It is great to be with you this morning. I see a lot of faces that I've known for a long time. Some of the names I uh, don't remember as well. Uh, help me out with the names, please. Um, but it's good to be here. I've known a little bit about Grace and Peace for, for quite some time now. And when I got back on home assignment, I called Josh, who served with us in Peru for a few years. I said, Josh, can you connect me with those folks from Grace and Peace? He said, sure, I've got you down to preach these two Sundays. So. I said, great, that sounds fantastic. Uh, my wife and kids didn't come today. Uh, we, they have a, my wife has a baby shower to go to in Floresville, Texas at 2 p.m., and so there wasn't enough time to get from here down there by then, but she'll be here with me next week. Um, and uh, let's see, somewhere along the way I'll get to tell you a little bit more about myself. Actually, there are, I've brought some brochures that are out here somewhere that will tell you a little bit about Peru mission and what we're doing uh, in, on the, the northern coast of Peru. Um, anyway, good to be here with you this morning. Let's take a look at this passage here in Exodus chapter 13. Um, most of our kids, we have seven kids, um, mainly my wife's fault. Um, most of them are out of the nest now. We have two that are left. Some are in college and uh, are grown and out of, out of college, but two are still at home with us. Um, but anyway, when all of our kids were small, one of the things that, one of the mantras that you could frequently hear in our home was the word prudence. Whenever we would see our kids and, and they were about to break something or maybe had just broken something or maybe they were just about to hurt one of their siblings or something like that, I would have them give me a definition of the word prudence. And, you know, it got somewhat comical because they, you know, maybe a little bitty tyke would stand up and say, prudence is the ability to look into the future imagining the likely outcome of a proposed course of action and then acting in such a way as to achieve an optimal future result. What that means is prudence is the ability to think about, okay, if I punch this button or if I put the, th these firecrackers in my brother's pants or if I do something like that, here's what might happen as a result of it. And so you can imagine it with small kids, with a bunch of small kids, we'll have plenty of opportunities to talk to them about the virtue of prudence and about uh, the importance of, of looking into the future and thinking forward and asking, okay, if I do this, what's going to happen? Now, as human beings, out of all of God's creatures, we're really the only ones that have any significant ability to think, 
to the future, to think about the future, to, to have a, a, a purpose for the future, or to have goals for the future, or to delay gratification because of some future goal that we're hoping for or looking for. So as humans, that, that's, that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. God has a purpose for the future, and as creatures made in His image, we are also able to think about the future, plan for the future, imagine ourselves in the future, and, and work towards uh, some aspect of, uh, uh, of what we hope to see in the future. Now, this text may not be immediately obvious at first, but we'll get to this. This text has something to say to us about that. But let me start with a question. When you think about your future, when you think about your purpose in life, uh, frequently as Christians when we talk about our purpose in life, we're talking about our vocation. But a lot of times our, what we don't do when we, when we talk about vocation is actually integrate that into God's purpose for the world. We, when we talk about our vocation, we think about what God's purpose is for us, and maybe it's to be a cobbler, or maybe it's to be a carpenter, or maybe it's to be an artist, or a musician, or whatever. But what we often don't do is to integrate that into God's purpose, His overall purpose for the world, or the future that God is envisioning for the world that He has made. And what I'm going to suggest as we go along here this morning is that for us to think adequately about the future, for us to have, uh, have goals that, that make sense for the long term, for us to, to, to understand what our vocation is, we have to understand something about the future that God has planned for his people and the future that he has planned for his world so that we can then integrate our plans and our purpose and our vocation into have it woven together with God's purpose. That's where we find our true purpose when we're able to weave it together with and integrate it or see how it integrates into God's purpose. Now, uh, again, let me ask you this, this question. What is your purpose in life? What is your future? What, what does God call you to do, to be and to do? That's an important question. That's something we're going we're gonna to get to here in a moment. Let me suggest this to you. God is calling you, he's calling me, he's calling this church, he's calling all of us, in this passage here, he's calling us to get a clear grasp of his plans for the world, his goals for the world, and to embrace them in Jesus in such a way that in him we not only find our purpose, the purpose for ourselves, but we also become part of the means by which he will bring his plan for the world to fruition. That's what we're going to see in this passage. Now, back to Exodus chapter 13. In the context, in the broader context of this passage, I think last week y'all were talking about 
the Passover. The, the previous chapter describes the institution of the Passover. It describes putting the blood on the lentils and the doorpost of the house. It describes how the death angel is to pass over the land of Egypt and how those who have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and on the lentil of the, of the doorway, those who have the, the blood displayed, the death angel will pass over them. But those, like the Egyptians, for example, who do not have the blood of the lamb on the lentils and on the doorpost of their homes, they will have the firstborn of their home will, will be killed. And not just of the humans, but also of the animals. And then this ritual, this activity that Israel uh, first uh, took part in on the night in, in, in which the Lord delivered them from Egypt, that ritual became something very important for Israel throughout all of the rest of their history. And so the last chapter describes the institution of that and the context for that. But then this chapter that we're looking at now takes that institution and is thinking about Israel's future and is thinking about the way that that applies or the way that Israel will be, will be carrying that out on into the future. Now, interestingly... Uh, or let me let me uh, say say it this way first. In chapter thirteen, God calls His people to keep the feast of unleavened bread and to consecrate their firstborn sons. Which at first glance it doesn't look like those two have a whole lot uh, to do with each other, but He calls them to do this and to participate in this as a way of remembering with gratitude what He has done for them in the past but also, and even more, as a way, as, as a means of hastening the glorious future that he has in store for his people, the glorious fulfillment of the plan that he has for his people and his world by enabling us to participate together with him in that. In the broader context of this passage, the word to remember, some form of the verb to remember or the, the noun form of the would be memorial. That word occurs at a number of points throughout our, our context here. And to, to fully appreciate what's going on here, we have to get a, a sense of what it meant for Israel in, this, in, a, in the, the context of their worship and in the context of the covenant. What did it mean for Israel to remember something or to make a memorial or to participate in memorializing something? Um, here we find in, in, in chapter 12, verse 14, there we read, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. There's that word, zakar, in Hebrew, that word for memorial. It occurs at a number of other points where God tells them to remember. He tells them uh, to, that, that as they talk about it with their children, they will be... Uh, they will be remembering it with their children. They'll be making a memorial. And then at the very beginning of our passage, almost the beginning, verse 3 in chapter 13, then, then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt. Uh, so anyway, this, this word to remember or some form of that verb to remember occurs at a number of points, and it's a key theological word. 
in the context of, of the covenant, to remember something is not only to think about the past. It's not only to think about what God did in the past, but it's also a means by which we call upon God for Him to remember the promises that He's made to us in the past and for Him to act again in the future for the salvation of His people. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Remember what happens after the flood when Noah comes out of the ark and then he offers sacrifices and, and then we have the rainbow. And what God says to Noah there when he puts the bow in the cloud, he says, I'm putting the bow in the cloud so that, and I, I, I can remember as a kid, I used to always read this as if it said, so that when you see the cloud in the sky, you will remember the promise that I made to you never to flood the world again. But that's not actually what the text says. God says, I'm putting my bow in the cloud so that when I cause a cloud to come over the earth, I will look at the rainbow, I will see the rainbow, and I will remember my promise. In other words, the, the rainbow as a covenant sign or a memorial, the word occurs there as well, the covenant memorial serves to remind God, not just us, it serves to remind God of His promises to us. We have this also, for example, in, the, uh, in, in Numbers chapter 10, in the memorial trumpets. There, that same word occurs again. The memorial trumpets are the trumpets that, it, that Israel would use to, to blast over their, their whole burnt offerings or their peace offerings. And the point of, the, of calling them a memorial trumpet is that when they blast the trumpet, the trumpet calls upon God to look upon his people and to remember them with favor, to remember the promises that he made to them. It's not just the people that are remembering. It's God who's called upon to, to remember. We have the example of the breastplate of the, of the high priest who had 12 gems, 12 precious stones on his breastplate. Now I ask you, why would there be 12? Because of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when he goes into the Holy of Holies and he goes in to make intercession for the people, each of these stones is called a memorial stone. And the purpose is not to remind Israel of something. The primary purpose is that each one of those stones represents one of the tribes of Israel. And it's like a visible prayer whereby when God sees that memorial, He remembers His people, He remembers His promise, and He keeps His promise to His people. We have another example of this in uh, the 12 stones that Israel sets up as a memorial, again that term memorial, in the Jordan River when they cross the river and go in to take possession of the promised land. They, they cross the river and they set up 12 memorial stones on the bank of the river. And apparently those memorial stones have as their purpose to remind Israel of what God did for them. Because you remember how they crossed the river, right? When they started to set foot in, in the river, in the, in the water, the, the waters piled up and Israel walked through on dry ground. And so what Israel did, in addition to the 12 stones that they put on the land they took another 12 stones and they put them in the bed of the river. 12 stones, memorial stones. 
And then after Israel passed by, the water filled back up again, the riverbed. And who could see these memorial stones after the rivers already washed back over them? Not the people of Israel. Rather, God himself, God is the one who would see these memorial stones and they would cause him to remember his promise. Now, it's not that God ever forgets. But just like our prayers, God knows what we need before we even pray for it. But he likes it when we pray for the things that we need. He likes to hear our prayers, and he's woven our prayers into the fabric of his own decrees. And he's determined to to fulfill his will in this world through our prayers. In the same way, a covenant memorial in the Bible has this purpose of calling God's attention and calling upon God to remember the promises that he's made. And we see that very clearly here in the Passover. They put the blood on the lentil lentil and the doorpost of the house, and the death angel comes by, sees the blood, which is the memorial, and then passes over the house, remembers, oh, this house belongs to me. And so he spares the firstborn in that house. He comes to the next house, the house of, the, of an Egyptian. He does not find the blood memorial there. And so he doesn't pass over. And he takes, uh, he, he judges that house by killing the firstborn. Now all, all of that is to say that when we look at, at this passage in chapter 13 and we, we, we read here this discussion about how Israel is supposed to engage in this, in this memorial activity, not just the one time when they left Egypt, but they're to do it every single year. Israel is called upon to engage in this every single year at this time. They're to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and included in, in that is the Passover. So what's the purpose of this memorial? Of course, it is to remind Israel of what God did for them in the past. Hopefully, it will stir up gratitude in their hearts. But it's more than just that. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, and particularly the Passover at the the center of that, is also a memorial in the sense that it calls upon God to remember His promises, to remember His people, to remember the promises that He made to His people and to give them the things that he's promised them. And so we see that, that here in this passage, that when Israel participates in this, it's not just about remembering the past. It's not just about Israel remembering the past or God remembering the past. It's actually about calling upon God to ensure the future that he has promised. And, of course, for Israel here, the future that he's promised is the promised land, the land of Canaan. He's promised to give them this land, to take them there and to give them a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And every time Israel participates in the Passover, yes, they're remembering what God did in the past, but they are also participating in something like a dramatic prayer whereby they call upon God to remember his covenant, to remember the promises that he made to his people and to fulfill those promises. Now that's the, the first part of this section, or, or the, almost the first part. Actually, the, the chapter is, is kind of made like a sandwich where it starts out talking about the firstborn sons in Israel 
And then it has the middle section that is dealing with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then in the last part, it, it starts talking about consecrating the firstborn sons again. So when we have the section on the, un the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there we see that God is calling upon them to, to focus on the future, to remember what that's about, the, un the, the lack of leaven in the bread. On the one hand, it's partly about separating themselves from the leaven of Egypt, the life of Egypt, the worldview of Egypt, the sin of Egypt, but also this, this memorial and this unleavened bread is calling upon Israel to remember what's ahead. Sort of like in the, uh, in the temple in Israel, they used wine all of the time, but no one ever got to drink the wine in the temple. No one ever got to drink it. They had to pour out the wine. In the same way, part of the, the sacrifices that they offered involved bread. But virtually all of those sacrifices had to be unleavened bread. In other words, you couldn't eat, you, you couldn't drink the, the, the good stuff, the wine, and you couldn't eat the best bread. All of that is something we look forward to in the future. And of course, in the New Covenant today, we get the wine and we get the bread. And we don't have to, I don't know if y'all have unleavened bread or not. That's a big debate in the history of the church, I would suggest to you that, that we should have leavened bread because now we're in the new covenant. We get to have the better bread in the new covenant. Anyway, all of this is about looking forward to the future, looking forward to what God has in store for his people in the future, not just remembering the past with gratitude, but looking forward to the future as well. When it talks about the consecration of the firstborn sons here, this also is about looking forward to the future. Why did they consecrate each one of the firstborn sons? It wasn't the firstborn sons of, of the men, uh, the, the first son uh, engendered by a, by a man. Rather, it's every son, the firstborn son that opens the womb. In other words, the, the son of, or the seed of the woman is the one that is to be consecrated. A man could have a couple of other wives and other children with those other wives, but when this, when, when the, let's say in this case, the third wife, when the third wife, hopefully they didn't have three, but let's say second wife, better. When the second wife has her firstborn son, that firstborn son has to be consecrated to God. The firstborn of all of the animals, if, there, if it's a clean animal, a sacrificial animal, it has to be sacrificed. But if it's a, the, the firstborn son of their wife, then that son has to be redeemed and it's replaced by an animal offering, but the son himself is consecrated to God. Now what's the meaning of this idea of consecrating the firstborn son? Part of what's going on here is the promise way back in Genesis 3.15 about how the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So when we read here about consecrating the firstborn son, this is about Israel throughout all of her history, about Israel looking forward to not just seeing 
the next firstborn son in their families. It's about looking forward to the seed of the woman, the firstborn son who's still to come. In other words, again, it's about looking to the future. We can see another aspect of this in, uh, towards the end of the passage when we're told there that they take up the bones of Joseph. Joseph died in Egypt. Joseph didn't get to participate in the, uh, he didn't get to participate in the exodus alive. He didn't get to walk out with them. But he made them promise before he died that they would not leave his bones in Egypt, but they would take his bones back to, to Canaan with them. The picture there is Joseph expects, Joseph hopes for, Joseph looks forward to the resurrection of the dead. And he wants his bones to be raised from the dead together with all of his family back in the land of Canaan and not down in Egypt. So again, the, the bread looks toward the future. The consecration of the sons looks forward to the future. Here, taking up the bones of Joseph and taking them back to the promised land looks forward to the resurrection, forward to what God has in store in the future for his people. We could even say here in the, at the very end when we see that God's people are being led by the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. When we see that, we see God himself is leading his people towards something. God is giving his people reason for hope, reason for expectation. He's calling on his, pe his people not just to remember the past, what he did for them in bringing them up out of Egypt, but also to look forward to what he has in store for them in the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land where they will enjoy, if they're faithful, they'll enjoy every imaginable blessing. So what we see in all of this is when they participate in these things, God is calling his people to not just remember the past with gratitude, but also to look forward to the future with great hope and great expectation. And he's calling upon his people to integrate their hopes and dreams and their purposes for the future into God's plans and purposes for his people and for his world. So when you think about your own life, I asked you earlier, what is your purpose in life? What is your vocation? Perhaps you're saying, but Pastor, my purpose is to survive. I understand if that's what you're thinking. But what I want to suggest to you is that you can't really understand your purpose in life, your calling in life, unless and until you're able to see how that purpose is actually woven into the purpose of God for his people and the purpose of God for his world. Until you see how your vocation fits into that overall plan that God has. Until you're able to look into the future and think about what God is doing and then integrating your life into that, then you'll probably look a little bit like the first generation of Israelites that spent 40 years in the desert 
wandering around in circles. Perhaps you're here today and you're, you're maybe considering the Christian faith. You've heard some things you like, maybe you've heard some things you don't like. What I would suggest to you is that you can't find your purpose in life. You can't find true fulfillment and joy and true happiness in life until you learn how to find your purpose woven into the fabric of Jesus' purpose for you, for your family, for this church, for this city of Austin, and for the world. That's the only way to find our true purpose, is to find it in Jesus. And the amazing thing is that as you come to see and understand and grasp what your true purpose is, what your calling in life is, as, as you do that, and as you find it in Jesus, what you'll discover is that he wants to use you as one of his instruments for bringing about the purpose that he has planned from the beginning. God could transform and renew and restore the world all by himself. He could just snap his fingers. He could just call a, a legion of angels to go do it. He could, he could do it in all kinds of different ways, but he's determined to use you He's got something very specific that he wants you to do. He's got something very specific that he wants this church to do in the city of Austin. He wants to use you as his instrument. As, as you seek out your purpose, he wants to use that to accomplish his purpose here in this city and in this world. Now think about what that actually Think about the significance of that. What if all of us, I mean, surely we, we know people who just can't seem to get it together. We know people who seem to be like the Israelites chasing their tail and wandering around in circles out in the desert. What would it mean to that person to finally understand and grasp their calling, but their calling as an aspect of God's purpose for this world. Think about what a difference it will make in their life. Perhaps your family, your marriage or your family feels like those Israelites wandering around in circles. As your family is able, as your marriage is able to find its purpose, its calling in connection with God's purpose for the world, that's when you will begin to find true joy, true happiness, true peace. Think about this church. I don't, I don't know. I, I haven't been talking to Josh Eby about anything in, in particular here at Grace and Peace, but I know that you're without a pastor. I can imagine that that's a little bit bewildering for you. You're wondering how long are we going to be without a pastor? Are we going to be chasing our tail and going around in circles in the desert of, of Austin until the Lord sends us a pastor? You don't have to have a pastor here to get on with a great part of what God has called you to do in this city. He's called you to care for those in need. 
He's called you to proclaim the gospel to everyone that you meet. He's called you to, to be a fountain of blessing to those around you here in this city. So what would it be like for this church? If, you, if, you're, if you're feeling like you're wandering in the desert right now, how will it be then if you find your clear calling, your clear purpose here, and are able to, to fulfill that? How will the city of Austin be? How, how will it be if all of the Christians in all of the churches in Austin, if we could, if we could get, our folk, get ourselves together and focus and clearly understand what our mission is for the city of Austin, what would happen to this city? What would happen to our world if the church could stop chasing its tail and wandering around in circles in the desert and if the church could focus on proclaiming Christ to the nations, ministering in Jesus' name to the sick, to the hurting, to all of those in need, to the poor, the world would be a very different place. Our Lord has the purpose or the intention of renewing and transforming the entire creation. It's not just that he's going to let it all go up and smoke one of these days. He's actually in the process. Since the day of Jesus' resurrection, that was the beginning of the new creation. The new creation was like a little bit of leaven or like a little tiny seed. And it's growing little by little as God's people get a, 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 a clearer grasp of their calling. As God's people come to understand more fully who they are in Christ, what He's called them to do, that little seed begins to grow and to blossom and to, to sprout and produce much fruit. God's plan is to restore the whole creation. And He wants to use you and this church and His whole church as His instrument for bringing about that restoration and that transformation. This passage about the exodus, about the, the Passover, it's not just about Israel remembering what happened in the past. It's also about knowing what God's plan is for the future and hitching our wagon to that. Knowing what God's plan is for the world and becoming a part of God's mission here in this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you who holds the universe in your hand, you who controls all things and who are carrying out your purpose in this world, you've decided to use weak and frail and flawed instruments such as us. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would stir in our hearts greater faith, greater courage, greater boldness, that we would not just remember what you've done in the past. We would embrace that with gratitude. and That would enliven our hope, but then we would look to the future and integrate ourselves into your plans for this city of Austin and for this world. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.